Hey, chocolate lovers, and happy new year. To start off 2021, we are chatting with Megan Giller of Chocolate Noise fame. Megan is the blogger behind ChocolateNoise.com, as well as a freelance writer and author of the book Bean to Bar Chocolate, America's Craft Chocolate Revolution. But beyond the written word, Megan has been showing up for fine chocolate in her tastings and her promotion of diverse voices in chocolate, especially female voices. We spoke just before Christmas about her book writing process, intersections with other industries, and brand conscious buying. So with our collective hope for a better year ahead, here's my interview with Megan Geller. First question is just, um, please tell me about yourself. Which nouns and adjectives best describe you? Oh, that's a great question. So (laughs) I'm Megan Giller. I'm a food writer specializing in craft chocolate. I write for Slate, Food and Wine, Fortune, all sorts of places. And I have a site called Chocolate Noise. And I wrote a book called Bean to Bar Chocolate, America's Craft Chocolate Revolution. So what nouns and adjectives best describe me? I guess I would like to say curious, quirky, fun, and I don't know if I can say this about myself, but intellectual. I guess those are all adjectives. I didn't have any nouns in there. Well, I mean, you mentioned the whole food writer thing. I feel like you can attribute that to yourself. Yeah, definitely (laughs) consider myself a, a feminist, too. So beyond being an author, you also are a freelance journalist. So how did you start your freelance writing career? You know, it's funny about my freelance writing career because I've always wanted to be a writer from a very early age. And I realized pretty early on that, you know, I used to write a lot of poetry and I was like, I don't really think anyone's going to going to pay me the big bucks to write poetry. Um, And so I started working in journalism And, you know, I've always loved food and that's been a big part of my life and my family and that kind of stuff. But I never really saw that as a career. But uh, the easiest way to write at some of the magazines that I worked for was to write about food. And especially at Texas Monthly, we would do these big roundups about food, like, you know, best barbecue in Texas and best small town cafes and stuff like that. So you could get assigned a certain territory, like a part of Texas, and go out and review all these restaurants and then write about them um, and then also do restaurant reviews for the back of the magazine, um, like, you know, the back section of the magazine. And so I started doing those as a way to get my foot in the door to write and then realized I loved food writing. And in a way, it was kind of like writing poetry and that there's so much capacity to write description, you know, and to really kind of go off in these uh, long passages about what something tasted like and felt like and smelled like and in a way that is very similar to poetry and creative nonfiction, which is a lot of what I write now. And I just kind of ran with it from there. And I ended up writing a weekly column online for Texas Monthly and doing a lot more food writing for them. And then it kind of grew from there. I I started writing for local publications and then for Zagat. I ran the Austin blog back when they had one and posted five times a day, which seems crazy. And of course, I've always had a sweet tooth and I've always wanted to write about dessert and 
chocolate that of course kind of took off in a, in a different direction than I ever thought it would. And now I know way more about chocolate than I ever thought I would too. So, I mean, just looking at your most recent pieces on megangiller.com, total plug, your curiosity about food is completely boundless, but you do see a lot of the Texas heritage in there and the affinity towards chocolate. Roughly what percentage of your work over the last few years has been dedicated to chocolate-centric pursuits, including the book and then freelance and consulting? Yeah, that's a good question. And I should say also that MeganGiller.com is shamefully out of date. Um, <laughs> so I need to put a bunch of features that I've written up there that I just have been lazy and, and not put. Um, but, you know, after the book, I started writing about different types of food beyond chocolate again. But I would still say that a lot of what I do is related to chocolate. I would say like at this point, maybe 75%. Um, because I, yeah, I know. And the only reason it's not higher than that is because I went back to school starting this year for my MFA in creative writing, which I don't know if a lot of people know, but, um, I'm working on a book that doesn't have that much to do with chocolate or food, but it is really funny that in my workshop classes where we, you know, submit our writing and then I'll talk about it everyone's always like, oh my gosh, there's so much food in here. I love all the food descriptions and the chocolate. And I'm like, I didn't even realize that was in there. But <laughs> but they're all picking up on that. And then, of course, I'm writing about chocolate some. And then I've also been doing a lot of chocolate tastings. So a lot of my day is still thinking about chocolate and talking to people about chocolate. In the craft chocolate world, I think people know you best through your book. But what made you decide on craft chocolate for your first book? Yeah, that's a good question. So I've always wanted to write books. And I kind of saw a book as the next step in, you know, I'd written a lot of um, online stories and stories for magazines and that kind of stuff. And I was writing long form pieces, but I really wanted to write a book. And this is kind of the inside story of what happened with the book. So, I mean, it came from two angles. So I'd wanted to write a book and I really wanted to collaborate with this photographer named Jody Horton, who actually did end up doing all of the photos of the desserts um, and recipes in my book. Um, and I, I said, Jody, what are you working on? He, he's um, a Texas photographer. Um, and and we, we kind of came up with like, you know, OK, we want to work on a project together. And he said, well, whatever you um, decide that you want to write about, make sure it's something that you absolutely love more than anything else in the world, because you're going to be thinking about it like ad nauseum for years. <laughs> um, and I was like, OK, well, I have the answer to that. It's chocolate. <laughs> um, and kind of like at the same time, I had, you know, realized that Bean Bar was having, was really having this, you know, chocolate was having this revolution, which was Bean Bar, and that all these exciting things were happening in that world. And I didn't know that much about it, but I wanted to learn more. And I had started writing these profiles of um, chocolate makers. And at that point, I don't even think they were live on um, chocolatenoise.com. They were something that I was doing um, and thinking about and thinking about how I could write more in depth about, um, you know, different makers that, and not just like kind of these top 10 lists that, that a lot of the, the websites that I write for want. Um, yeah. 
And so I ended up putting those up as chocolate noise in these different profiles. And then um, a publisher reached out to me and was like, hey, um, do you want to write a book based on this? And I was like, well, yes, of course. So <laughs> interesting. But I mean, it was, of course, I feel like my five-year-old self would be very happy. And my five-year-old self was definitely answering the question when, when Jody asked, what is it that you love more than anything? And it's like, well, yeah, the answer is chocolate. <laughs> So you were already a food writer for many years before you started writing the book and got deeply into the movement. But for me, I mean, craft chocolate served as a gateway to, I mean, fascinations with other foods and food ways. But how do you think your relationship with craft chocolate has affected your own relationship with other foods and food ways and your interest in learning about maybe international food ways? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I think like for me, I was interested in artisanal food before craft chocolate. And I, when I ran the Zagat blog, you know, and I had to um, write five stories a day about food in Austin, one of my columns that I wrote weekly was called Artisans in Austin. And I would go interview different specialty food producers, you know, all these, you know, single makers and like like the craft chocolate makers or in cheese and that kind of stuff um, in the city about what they were doing. So I was already kind of interested in that and foodways. Um, and then of course chose one area to dive deep into. But I think as I've um, really gotten so deep into chocolate, I've realized that 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 is how much, how deep you can get into chocolate, you can get that deep into every other type of food too, and every other ingredient really, like with cheese or with kimchi or, you know, with really almost anything. Um, it is so complicated and so interesting um, and nuanced. And I think that's really fascinating. And it, it's kind of like the more you know, the more you realize you don't know, as cliched as that is. But it's made me really interested to learn a lot more and also just honor different food ways and different foods a lot more. So something you said earlier kind of struck me as very true as someone who writes for the Internet, that platforms were looking for like top 10 lists. And that's kind of um, not changed at all, let's say, if anything, it's gotten maybe worse with the proliferation of social media and search engine optimization over the last like five or six years. Have you seen the chocolate industry stay on sort of the same projected path that you were expecting it to go down in 2015, 2016, when you were doing all this research? Or has it changed at all? Because it feels like for me from the last five years, the blogging industry, the online publishing industry hasn't changed that much in in its expectations, whereas craft chocolate maybe has? What is your opinion on that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think craft chocolate has changed a lot in the past five years. I mean, I updated my list of the top 50 makers recently from what's in my book, even though the book hasn't changed, the list online is different. Because so many makers have changed <laughs> in the past three years from when the book came out. There's, you know, different companies have closed, a lot more have opened. I think people are doing 
really different things. Not nearly as many companies making just two ingredient bars. I think there are a lot more companies making their own um, confections as well, which is something that I predicted would happen. I mean, as many other people did too. Um, and kind of more collaborations with chefs and those sorts of things. So, yeah, I think it's transformed in a lot of ways and kind of going back to your question in a way that like the blogs and um, online magazines and publications haven't changed, which is maybe why they are a little bit in trouble, <laughs> at least from my perspective, whereas Bean Bar, I feel like, is expanding more. It's also been interesting to see the big chocolate companies, not within craft, but just in general, start to use those terms. Like I saw a big European company that shall not be named um, using the, the hashtag bean to bar the other day. And I was like shocked because it's something that's definitely not bean to bar. So um, I thought that was really interesting that they're starting to use that terminology, even though they're, they're not changing their manufacturing process. They're just changing, um, you know, what they're using to market it. So it's definitely a different playing field, I guess, than what it used to be. Yeah, I feel like there are maybe fewer or or much more fragmented movements within online publishing because it covers so many different industries that like co-opting from larger corporations happens within these other individual like niches of online publishing because it's it's a platform. Definitely. Yeah. And I think it's been really interesting with online publishing or just publishing in general to watch kind of the proliferation of these really small food magazines that have actually gone back to print or like really specific online publications. Like I think there was one just devoted to the love of Taco Bell a while ago. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Good food writers and stuff. But so <laughs> playing with that and like not necessarily wanting to submit to Bon Appetit and, and stuff like that anymore, but really kind of trying to make it their own, maybe similar projects to Chocolate Noise. Um, there's a lot of really small publications that are doing really cool stuff out there too. So on the topic of online publishing and, and the online platform in general, I've seen a lot of this like search engine optimization, which may be a little too niche for people who are listening to this for the chocolate, but I've seen a lot of these bigger outlets covering a lot of things that they wouldn't really have covered five or 10 years ago, just to try and get the traffic and, and the, the ad views that earn them money. And a lot of it is regurgitation of press releases, basically. But as a journalist who's independent, who's who's contracting out, a freelance journalist, how do you see your role within the chocolate industry and the food artisan food industry as a whole? I think that I've started to um, realize that, I mean, I, I'm an independent journalist and I don't need to regurgitate those press releases and that kind of stuff. But I also feel strangely protective of, of the craft chocolate movement now. And so I, I feel like a lot of my role has become being very supportive of makers um, and the movement in general. And so I see that as a big part of what I do, not to the point of like just blind appreciation um, and blind accolades, but being an ambassador a little bit for craft chocolate, I guess, in terms of translating what things mean sometimes for a lay audience. 
but then also, you know, telling people about the brands I love and that kind of stuff and where to get them, um, whether that's like in conversation with people or during a tasting or as a journalist. So I see that more and more as my role. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that I don't know if that <laughs> answers your question, but it, that increasingly is, is what I'm seeing as I move a little bit more from writing specifically about chocolate to writing um, about other types of food and, and other topics in general, too. It's kind of like a bridge between the consumer and the maker or producer. Yeah, because I mean, I realized people are generally so confused about what they're buying. And I am too, not about not necessarily about chocolate, but just about certain products in general. And I kind of hate that feeling. And if there's something that I know about or think I understand a little bit, then it, then I would like to share that with other people and clarify, like, you know, the idea that percentage, for example, is related to quality. You've got all these people like, oh, I only eat 75%. <laughs> I think if they understood that a little bit better, they would have a different opinion about it, you know. And so introducing them maybe to like a really good milk chocolate made by Fruition or, you know, another brand that I really love. Like that is, um, that seems really like a nice thing to do. You know, I, I remember, I mean, when my book came out, I ended up writing a lot about milk chocolate because all of these um, publications were like, what? milk chocolate <laughs> so that was kind of interesting I think it's been interesting also to see the intersection between people who have platforms whether they're like social media influencers or whatever or journalists like yourself slowly bringing more people into the craft chocolate industry not necessarily directly by like touting the greatness of craft chocolate and how good it is for you and for the planet and for everything, but maybe through keto chocolate or through like THC or CBD chocolate, these other industries sharing the influence, if you will. Yeah, that has been really interesting to watch. And I actually ended up writing a story for Engadget a while ago about edibles. I mean, what I ended up focusing on was a chocolate made with beans from Marignan Canyon. <laughs> so that was interesting. Uh, that was the, the chocolate that ended up being the best edible um, or one of the best that I found. <laughs> Definitely the highest quality. Feel free to tell me to cut this out if you don't want to offer them any free press, but what is the brand? So the brand is called Binsk or Binsky. I always forget how to pronounce it. <laughs> you know, it definitely has, I would say, a grassy flavor to it um as they always do right but <laughs> it you know it is made with those beans um and uh it, they they know what they're doing so <laughs> i i think that if you if you tried it against some of the other bars made with those beans you would you would taste a huge flavor difference but it is also you know a, a THC slash CBD bar. So <laughs> okay, so it is it is THC. Do you know where they're based? I'm I'm trying to see on their site and I can't really figure it out. Yeah, they have a complex business model, but I will <laughs> yeah. send an article and you can share it with your readers if you want to. Yes, please do. Yeah, I mean, I I have my 
medical marijuana license actually for Maryland. So if I can buy it in Maryland, I can buy it, but you can't legally transport it across borders, even if you have your license. So I bet they have it in Maryland because they're that company is huge. Um, so I bet that it, you are able to get it there. That would be really cool. I would love to try some chocolate that just that doesn't just taste like uh, grass, as you nicely put it. Um, yeah. So. Well, that was the the point of the story. I mean, that's how I ended up starting to write that story. I, I had mm. this idea several years ago. Like, surely someone is making an edible with some chocolate that isn't just totally crummy. <laughs> and then that became this really quest to find something that just wasn't the worst quality. And I like ended up opening. <laughs> things that weren't chocolate because everything I found was so terrible and then now I never want to try another edible ever again because um I had to try so many to to write that story (laughs) weirdest research ever (laughs) it really was pretty weird research (laughs) so I mean people compare a lot um, the coffee industry, the wine industry, uh, sometimes even the beer industry. And now I think there's been some crossover with the marijuana industry. Do you see any other industries kind of up and coming that may collaborate with or have some crossover with the craft chocolate industry? I, I mean, I, I think you named all of them, but, but one that I think that people, it's not really, I don't think it's an industry in the same way, but mm-hmm. I think the fascination with bread um, mm. has a relation to the fascination with making chocolate. I don't think it's an industry in the same way and that you're not going to see a bunch of tiny bakeries putting out sourdough or like people. But I do think there's a ton of people making sourdough at home the way that there are a ton of people making chocolate at home. Um, and this like intense fascination with the science of it and like people who just get really nerdy about it and really enjoy that. And I think that's similar to the bean to bar chocolate movement in a lot of ways. And the way that like it's not just the makers in the chocolate movement, it's the fans who really enjoy getting really nerdy about it, too. So to switch gears a little bit, uh, you held a series of seminars over the summer focused on how we can support and foster more black owned and BIPOC owned businesses in the industry. Uh, What were you and are you hoping to accomplish in shining a light on this segment of of the industry of producers? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, I mean, that series was kind of born out, to be honest, of of my frustration with myself, of, um, you know, the ways I hadn't thought about that in the past. And then also, um, you know, I uh, am high risk for covid and wasn't able to go out uh, to all of the protests and the marches and that kind of stuff in a situation where in the past I would have been in all of those and had historically been involved in those sorts of things. Um, and so that was very frustrating to me that I had to stay at home and I felt really isolated and kind of helpless. And I thought, okay, well, is there some way I can be involved? And I thought, well, no one's really addressing this in the craft chocolate community, which is an overwhelmingly white community, despite the fact that there are so many people of color all over the world who are involved in chocolate. Why is it that it's this way in the U.S., which is mainly where craft chocolate, you know, has taken off? 
So I wanted to put that together to just kind of address that question and celebrate the people who are making chocolate and are involved in that in industry who like we haven't necessarily highlighted in the past and then just open it up and try to have a more inclusive community. And so it was a lot of work and I think I um, was over my head and that I don't have a lot of experience with that. So I, I'm really thankful that the team at Uncommon Cacao and Carla Martin have kind of banded together and are working on an initiative now. And, you know, they're involving the whole community in it and have taken that over. So, um, but I, I'm happy that like people came and were interested and were involved uh, for those three panel sessions too. I mean, I think it was very enlightening for people to watch, but I think that the numbers were also really striking. I mean, when you first came out with the list of of Black-owned and then BIPOC-owned, women-owned. Am I saying that right? Bi BIPOC? Yeah, I've heard BIPOC and BIPOC. I mean, I, I think they're both right as far as I know. Okay. I'm going to go with BIPOC, I guess, because I already yeah. started, you know. Yeah. Stay loyal. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, when you first came out with that list on your site, chocolatenoise.com, at the end of May, right around when all of the movement was starting here in the U.S., I mean, I'm located in D.C., you're in New York City, I imagine. We were both seeing huge protests right outside of our windows, but the numbers were really striking to see that there are only five Black-owned craft chocolate businesses in all of the U.S. I mean, roughly how many craft chocolate businesses are there in the U.S. right now? I think about 200. It's hard to count exactly, though. Okay. And the U.S. population is about 13 or 14 percent African-American. So the fact that only about two and a half to three percent of the craft chocolate businesses are owned by Black Americans is kind of mind-blowing. After that initial educational moment, what kinds of takeaways do you have for people who are both consumers and chocolate producers, maybe even cacao brand representatives, to make their brands more inclusive? Oh, gosh. I mean, there's so many takeaways, but, you know, I am so not the expert on this. So um, mm. one thing that I have been really excited about is that as part of my program at the new school, so I've gone back to school for my MFA in creative writing. As part of my program, I've been able to join something called the Impact Entrepreneurship Fellowship. I am in a class. It's a whole program, but it, I like this semester, I took a class where we learned all about human-centered design and IDO and all sorts of things like that, really talking about social justice and how to 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 um, build that into your business. Um, and then next semester, I'm studying that even more. And the idea is to create a social venture that really is inclusive and addresses social justice and, and a specific problem that you're trying to address by the time you're done with the two-year program. So um, I am definitely far from the expert and don't have takeaways that I can list off. I think I maybe would need to think more about that. But I guess the takeaway for me is just that I'm learning a lot. And the takeaway this semester has been the human-centered design that, you know, people's lived experience is so important and so much more important, really, than these ideas that um, someone from outside the community can kind of come in and, and say what's what and determine something for everyone else. We can only speak from where we are in our in our journeys, in our lives. 
Totally. I think the phrase brand conscious buying has kind of become popular, at least within uh, producers looking to gather consumers to to have a larger market to cater to. But what does the rise of this brand conscious buying and brand conscious marketing mean for craft chocolate, in your opinion? Oh, that's interesting. Brand conscious buying. I mean, I, you know, I, to, tell, to tell you the truth, I haven't come across that term as much as you probably have. So, I mean, tell me a little bit more about it. So it's basically the idea that when consumers are looking at a brand or a product in general, they're more aware or they want to be more aware of where it's coming from, the people behind it, the people who are impacted by their purchase, especially when it comes to food, it seems like. Um, I, I would consider myself a brand conscious buyer. And when I go to a website, one of the first things I look at, I look for is the about page. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely in, according to that definition, a brand conscious buyer too. And I mean, I think it's really good news for bean to bar chocolate and craft chocolate because that's such a big part of craft chocolate's mission in general. Um, and it's something that a lot of companies I know have really built into how they work. And then finally, it sounds like, you know, consumers are, are paying attention to it and are looking for that. In the past, it's been a very specific type of consumer and a rare consumer who has cared about that. But more and more, we're seeing people who are interested in that. And, you know, especially even they're asking big corporations like, hey, how much are you really giving back to the community? How much are you donating? Like, what are the social justice causes that you're, you know, concerned about? Not only that, but like, you know, millennials and Gen Z, that's how they're choosing where they're going to work, too. So I think overall, it sounds like it's really good news for being to bar chocolate. You also alluded earlier to writing a second book. Are you how deep into that process are you? I am pretty deep into that process. Mm -hmm. I'm lot every day, but I um, it. So this is more of like a memoir slash research project um and it's not that food related so um but you know i don't have a book deal or anything like that yet this is more kind of a labor of love so strangely i, I have another book that is related to food <laughs> kind of picked out for after that that i've also started working on so too too many projects too little time i mean a little bit each day it always helps yes so you're third book slash second book concurrently that's that's not the memoir does it have anything to do with like feminism and food ways yeah definitely so I mean I've had this plan I, both do but the the food related one I, I really wanted to write more um it started out kind of about women in chocolate um and then kind of has morphed into being more about women in sugar. And there are stories about women in chocolate too, but I, I guess I just think the transformation of sugar starting out as something that was really seen as masculine and, you know, a expression of your wealth and power and that somehow over a couple hundred years has now become something that seems super feminine and like extra, like we don't really need it. And um, whatever else, or like very girly, like I don't, I, I think that transformation is really fascinating. So 
I mean, it's not a history book, but it has that history in it. And when you say sugar, are you referencing only cane sugar or all sorts of sweeteners? Yeah, I mean, I thought about it specifically as cane sugar, but I think it takes into account all sorts of sweeteners too. And, you know, all sorts of sweets like chocolate and ice cream and hard candy and all of that kind of stuff. And I have, um, you know, I feel like what we were talking about before in terms of uh, being this ambassador um, for the craft chocolate industry, I feel like a lot of what my role has been is translating things that are technically difficult to understand for a lay audience. And I feel like that might be true in terms of like a lot of stories that I tell because a lot of the work that I like, I'm just thinking about like, I don't know if, if anyone's seen the online video series I did, What Women Ate, but there was, you know, those were like academic stories that I had transformed into like a video series. But just like the women and sugar thing that I'm talking about, like I have all these academic books that like I plan to turn into something that's not academic at all. So again, it's kind of translating it into something for a different audience. I can definitely see the potential for, I'm just saying hundreds of pages of <laughs> material on women and sugar. I mean, all, all the things that you were talking about earlier also involve a certain degree of transformation, which I think women have been doing for centuries, millennia, hundreds of thousands of years. I don't know however far we go back. Totally. I feel like this story is incomplete if I don't ask you about this, but the current hot topic everywhere is COVID. So, I mean, how have you had to adjust in the face of coronavirus, including like living in New York City back in April? Yeah, coronavirus has been um, a pretty big deal for everyone in the world. I mean, it's transformed life for everyone. Um, so, I mean, it's been a big deal for, for me as well. I mean, I was in New York City and um, I am not in New York City anymore. My husband and I left a couple months ago. We had always kind of dreamed of living in upstate New York and we were like, well, it seems to be the time to not be in New York City anymore. So we moved out of the city and we, we bought a house and we're really enjoying it up here and like walking around without a mask, without anyone nearby and hiking and that kind of stuff. And my dog loves it. So that part has been nice. Of course, it's been hard to weather COVID. I don't think I've seen anyone in a couple of weeks. You know, I mentioned in an MFA program and that has been online. So that's yeah. been, interesting. but um, the other part that is kind of interesting too, is I, I think I mentioned that I do some chocolate tastings and there's definitely been more of a demand for those. I think because it is so nice for people to get a treat of chocolate in the mail and then do something online and connect with their friends and family or co colleagues or whoever it is. Um, you know, those used to be in person, but now, of course, have gone online too. So that has been a big change, uh, all COVID related for me too. So it's definitely been a, a strange long year for everyone, I think. But congratulations on the house. Thank you. Yeah, we're enjoying it. I mean, there's obviously negative things and positive things happening now. You mentioned your tastings. Most of them seem to be with usually one maker. Is that correct? 
Yeah, one maker, you know, during when the pandemic started, I, I really wanted the for the public facing tastings, I really wanted to do to, I was trying to feature makers who had storefronts that they'd had to close. Um, makers that I knew would probably have a hard time at uh, more than others at that specific time and to support them in any way I could. So that was featuring one maker. And then for the private tastings, I, I work with, I kind of partner with a couple of different companies to do um, private tastings. And generally, eh, it's, sometimes it's one maker, sometimes it's several. Did you see the um, the contents of the Dallas Chocolate Festival boxes back in September? They looked amazing. I know. I didn't get one. They were sold out by the time I realized I would not be busy that weekend. No. I didn't. Yeah. I regretted it, too. Have you ever thought of doing something like that, not on a 50-maker scale, but maybe on like a 10-maker scale that's kind of a surprise and people have no idea what's coming their way? I have thought of doing stuff like that, um, and it's just kind of a matter of the logistics. Um, and I've definitely talked to some makers recently where it's really hard to get their stuff in the U.S. and talking about how to get it here. Um, it's just a matter definitely right now of like shipping <laughs> and making oh, it happen and also making sure I have time to do those those sorts of fun projects. So my final question that I have made note of is the Academy of Chocolate Results came out less than a week ago. Um, I'm not sure if you saw that. I saw it on Instagram. I did see that. I know. Yeah. So many good good brands and good companies. Yeah. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on ingredient certifications and chocolate award systems insofar as being very visible markers on packaging and what their role might be moving forward in the industry? I mean, I guess I should say that I, I judge at several different competitions. I judge the International okay. and um, the Chocolate Alliance Awards. So it's a complicated question, but I think for both consumers and the chocolate companies, it can be a really good thing. Um, because for the chocolate companies, of course, it helps with marketing. And then for the consumers, I know that that is something they really look at and value um, in terms of how to pick chocolate, especially when they really don't know the difference, you know, and they're looking at a whole wall. And, you know, they, they know they want something from one maker, but they don't know what bar to get. But I do think it's really hard. Chocolate or really any food is it depends so much on preferences. And so it's like, how can you really standardize that so much? But I, I will say I've always loved judging both of those competitions. And most recently, I when I judged the Chocolate Alliance Awards, Chloe was really kind of in charge of, of all of them. And it was very rigorous and really a cool experience to judge with her. And so that was, uh, I felt very confident in what we chose and the methodology that was used. Okay, so those are all of my questions, but I mean, is there anything else you'd like to share or that you'd like to discuss that you feel like we haven't talked about yet today? No, I feel like you asked really great questions and we talked about a lot. Um, well, where can people find you? Well, yeah, people can find me um, at chocolatenoise.com and on Instagram and Facebook at chocolatenoise and on Twitter at Megan Giller. 
Are you doing any more consulting for the upcoming year while you have class and, and tastings and everything? I am doing a little bit of consulting, um, a very little bit. So if someone wants to to reach out, you can definitely find me at Megan at chocolatenoise.com. I'm always interested in doing chocolate consulting. Um, I guess one thing we could say is, I mean, I'm doing um, chocolate tasting for Galentine's Day. So, hey. which is kind of related to the feminism thing we were talking about or like all yes. the <laughs> So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, we're putting together some really fun tastings for Galentine's Day if, if there are groups of, you know, it's usually for people probably like groups of 10 and under, and it'll be either 30 minutes or an hour and we send you chocolate and then we all get online and, you know, have kind of a little party together. <laughs> and all the info for that is on chocolatenoise.com? It will be shortly. Um, it will be by the time this is out. Yes. In like two weeks. Yeah. Well, yeah, it will be by the new year. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much for speaking with me. I was so looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for listening to this extended interview from Chocolate on the Road. If you liked it, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. In fact, please share it in any way you see fit. Your support makes all the effort put into each episode worth it. And a special huge thank you to Megan for being in this episode. To learn more about Chocolate Noise, check out the show notes for this episode at the link in the description or on my website at damecacao.com. That's D-A-M-E-C-A-C-A-O dot C-O-M. Have a wonderful day, and I hope you'll join me next time we go on the road. Thank you.